I really feel that changing the way that we distribute work and reward work in the workplace is the one way that we can reduce the gender wage gap, make it easier for women to negotiate, give them opportunities for advancement, reduce the gender gap and burnout, all at the same time. So we've sort of been top down looking at these differences and saying, oh, we should reduce the gender wage gap. But if we don't study where it's coming from, we can't just reduce the gender wage gap. Greetings, everyone, and welcome to Unleashed, the fastest hour on the internet, where every episode we feature a best-selling author or world-renowned thought leader, all in the name of helping you elevate your leadership impact. I'm your host, Jeff Tetz. And I want to thank our season sponsor, PowerEd. PowerEd is an award-winning division of Athabasca University who partners with organizations looking for impactful online learning solutions. Their on-demand online offerings include leadership, project management, artificial intelligence ethics, digital transformation, embracing allyship and inclusion, and digital wellness. Check out the team from Athabasca University at athabascau.ca. My guest today is Lisa Vesterlind. Lisa Vesterlind is the Andrew W. Mellon Professor of the Department of Economics at the University of Pittsburgh. Vesterlind works in two distinct research areas, charitable giving and gender differences in the labor market. Her work on charitable giving aims to determine why we give to charity and how solicitation strategies influence donations to organizations. Her research on gender sheds light on why men continue to be more successful than women in climbing the corporate ladder. She has demonstrated systematic gender differences in behavior when deciding whether to enter a competition or a negotiation or when asked to perform a non-promotable task. Her work points to mechanisms that can be put into place to ensure the best qualified candidates are those promoted. Her research has been featured in the New York Times, Washington Post, Boston Globe, The Economist, Time Magazine, and the Harvard Business Review. Her latest endeavor as co-author of The No Club, putting a stop to women's dead-end work, is what I'm most excited to talk with her about today. Lisa, welcome to Unleashed. Uh, thank you so much for having me. So I, uh, I am really interested in, in this topic today, and, and uh, I have learned uh, a lot over the last few years from other thought leaders that do work on diversity, inclusion, and workplace equity, and I continue to uncover blind spots, and uh, I think that uh, this conversation today is going to help me understand some of the things that I'm probably doing in the workplace that are getting in the way of women advancing in their own careers. And my hope is that it's going to help other people do the same. So thanks for us. Thanks for making some time to be here. Uh, we, we're delighted to, to, I'm saying we in the plural, but we're delighted to get the word out about our new book. So uh, it's our pleasure. So you co-authored this phenomenal book entitled The No Club, Putting a Stop to Women's Dead-End Work. Now, why was it so compelling that the four of you devoted so much time writing this book? So the, the No Club started about 12 years ago when I and four other women sort of got together because we felt our work lives had gotten out of control. Uh, we were working nonstop um, and really were feeling like our careers had plateaued at the same time. And what we started to do was to meet once a month and talk about the things that we said yes to and the things we said no to. And what we quickly realized 
was that the reason why we were so busy and the reason why we were unhappy with being so busy was that we were doing a lot of work that really didn't matter to our careers, but mattered a lot to our institutions. So the reason why it was compelling to write this book was both that we had a lot of personal experiences with being overloaded with uh, assignments that were sort of really not helping our careers, but um, also that it became clear that many other people were in the exact same situation. And through our research, we found some really key insights on how we can uh, help everyone improve um, this problem. And one of the things that comes out of the book is this, uh, this idea of what you call an NPT, a non-promotable task. Now, what is a non-promotable task? Because I have never heard this term until I read your book. Well, it's probably because we came up with the term. Um, so uh, a non-promotable task is a task that helps out the organization you are working for, but doesn't help advance your career. So you can think about it as helping other people with their work, uh, working on onboarding. Um, there's a recent study that was done by McKinsey and Lean In where they asked 400 organizations to sort of think about the work that they thought was really critical that their management team was working on. And in that set of, of, of things was checking in on employee well-being. 90% of the organizations said it was important to check in on employee well-being, yet only 25% had any kind of formal recognition of, of this type of work. The same thing happened with diversity, equity, and inclusion. Everybody thought it was critical, but very few people had any kind of recognition for the work. So non-promotable tasks are tasks that help out the organization that need to get done, but that don't, doesn't get any recognition from the organization. So in, in your experience, you, so the, the No Club started sharing ideas um, and personal stories about the assignment and maybe the inequitable assignment of non-promotable tasks. And, but then you started to conduct your own research to see if you were alone in the world or if other women were experiencing this. I wonder if you could share some of the research that you conducted and, and then what started showing up uh, through that process. So our first step to sort of looking at this, because we, we sort of very systematically saw that the work that was keeping us so busy uh, was all had this character of being non-promotable. Um, and you can think about, you know, onboarding, serving on internal committees, a lot of the things that you do as a faculty member, sort of, you know, refereeing papers, it sort of is important, but it doesn't count. And as we started to meet, uh, we began to wonder whether or not it was just us who felt overburdened by this or if other people were similarly overburdened. And when we looked at the research that has done, been done already, what we found was that in every single profession and occupation that we looked at, women were doing more of what we characterized as non-promotable tasks. So it didn't matter if you're in academia, if you're a lawyer, an engineer, a TSA agent, a supermarket clerk, everywhere we saw women were doing a lot more of this work. And in fact, we worked with a professional services firm where they keep meticulous accounts of ours, which allowed us to really look at what it was everybody was doing. And then we could ask the management team to then characterize whether or not the work was promotable and non-promotable. And what we saw in, in looking at the data was that women in this organization were spending a full 200 more hours on non-promotable work than men. So that's a full month each year 
that these women were spending on work that didn't get recognized and didn't get rewarded. So the, the research That's clearly showed that women are doing a lot more of the work uh, that we sort of characterize as being non-promotable. Well, that is, that's staggering. And what are some of the common examples of, of a non-promotable task that people could identify with? Because I, I imagine there's a lot of people right now listening to this conversation that are probably oblivious to the notion that they're even performing non-promotable tasks right now. So it's, it depends, you know, what is non-promotable really depends on both the occupation you're in, but also the rank that you hold in that occupation. So what is non-promotable for you uh, in your current position might have been promotable earlier in life. So uh, the, the way to sort of think broadly about it um, is, you know, it's taking notes at meetings, it's uh, serving on internal committees, as I said before, diversity, equity, and inclusion, um, preparing um, a, doc, a presentation, but not actually giving it. Um, if you work in sort of a for-profit uh, firm, it would typically be non-revenue generating work. So there's sort of a very broad set when you want to think about what are the characteristics of non-promotable tasks. Um, we've sort of come up with three key characteristics that, that tend to capture a lot of the non-promotable work. So if you look at the assignments that you have, the first question to say is how directly linked is this to the mission of the organization? So if, if you are aiming to, to produce profit, then you should be generating revenue. Second question is how visible is it? Do people actually see that you have done this work? If you are reviewing somebody else's um, document and sort of giving edits on it, most people will not know that that is the work that you have done. So visibility is the second one. And the last and really critical one is whether you are using your specialized skills. So mm. is the training that you have secured instrumental in performing this work? And what tends to happen with non-promotable work is that lots of people can do it. It doesn't just have to be you. So if you're a surgeon, doing surgery is what is promotable. Doing a lot of administrative work is not. So asking those three questions, how core is it to the mission? Is it visible and does it rely on your specialized skills? Is sort of the first step to making sure that um, this is indeed um, promotable and not non-promotable work. Those, those are the characteristics we look for. Yeah, that's a fantastic framework, Lisa. Very simple and very clear. So thank you for that. Now, you, you say that women in some cases are then taking on as much as a, a whole month's worth of additional work on top of their core job. And, and I think fundamentally the question I have is why? Why is this happening and why is it so disproportionate? And I, I understand that's probably a very complex answer, but I'm, I'm really interested in, you know, in some, of the, some of the key elements of, of uh, sort of the root causes that are at play here. So that's, that's an excellent question because that is truly what we need to understand in order to figure out whether we should be doing anything about it and what we can do about it. So you could imagine that women are just doing more of this work because this is the work that they're best at. We hear time and again that the reason why women are organizing the holiday party, the reason why they're handling the challenging client is because they're so good at it. So it could just be that women are given this work because that is what they're best at. Um, so we, we need to first sort of figure out, are they doing this because they're really better at it? Or are they doing it because they somehow have different preferences that they prefer to do the work that, that is less promotable? 
or is there something else that is driving it? So what we decided to do was to really nail down on why, why it is that women are doing this work. And we sort of gave a little bit of thought to how we often end up allocating the, this type of work. And the way it often happens is that you come into a meeting and uh, a manager comes in, describes an assignment that nobody really wants to do, and then asks for a volunteer. And we sort of became curious when you get this question for a volunteer, we all know what happened. A lot of people sort of look like they suddenly can't hear anything. They're looking off in the distance, checking their watches for messages. And we wanted to see who is it who reluctantly raises their hand in these meetings. So we ran um, a very large number of studies where we brought in um, participants to sort of be in a group where they had to just find a volunteer for an assignment that everybody wanted to get done, but everybody preferred that somebody else would do. And we had hundreds of these groups, people were in multiple groups. And what we saw was that when you're in this setting, women are far more likely to be the ones who reluctantly raised their hand. In fact, women raised their hand 50% more than men. So when you just come into this setting and you're just asking for a volunteer to take on this work that everybody knows has to be done, but you really prefer not to do, that women are just more likely to raise their hand to take it on. So we see differences in who volunteers, but as you're correctly saying, it's like, well, why are they volunteering? Well, in our case, volunteering just meant you had to push a button on your screen. And I can assure you there are no gender differences in your ability to push a button on the screen. So this is not because women somehow are better at pushing the button on the screen. Um, but it could I, well, be I would, Lisa, I, I would suggest that men are better at pushing buttons. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, um, but one reason, so it's not because men and women are different in the skill at pushing this button, but it could be that women were volunteering more because they had different preferences. So that was sort of the next question we had to look at. So could it be that women are volunteering more because they are more concerned about the collective? They come in, they can see we're all going to benefit if somebody volunteers, and I'm going to be the one to take that on because I'm more concerned about the group. So to study that, we spend a lot of time sort of thinking, how do, we, how do we nail this down? How do we really see if women have different preferences? And we came up with what I think is a really clever design. So initially we had had both men and women come in and be in these mixed gender groups. But we thought if women have different preferences, then it has to be that if I have groups of only women, that groups of only women volunteer more than groups of only men. So if it's coming from sort of my innate preferences, an all-female group should be more successful in finding a volunteer than an all-male group. So we ran that study where, you know, at the University of Pittsburgh, we bring in all men, all women. All they know is that they are paired with other people. And what we see is not that women volunteer more than men. Rather, men and women volunteer at the exact same rate when they're in single sex groups. So it's not that men don't know how to push the button. They just don't do it when the women are in the room. So we no. get this very, very stark finding that there's no differences in preferences here. This is admittedly, this is, you know, just over pushing a button is not to say that preferences couldn't vary in other scenarios, but what it really points to is that a key part to why women are volunteering more is that we all expect them to. When we come into a room and we're trying to find a volunteer, 
we all coordinate on women being the ones who are going to raise their hand. And given that we all expect women to raise their hand, it becomes in their best interest to do so because nobody else is going to volunteer because they're all waiting for her to raise her hand. And just to sort of push it one more, one step further, if we all have these expectations, then it should also be the case that managers, if they're asking someone to take on an assignment that they know nobody wants to do, that they're more likely to ask the women. So in our sort of the next phase of the study, what we did was that we brought in a manager who looks at the three people who potentially can volunteer, but before they get to decide who will volunteer, the manager gets to ask somebody in the group by saying, hey, could you please be the one who volunteers? And lo and behold, when the manager sees the composition of the group, the manager is 44% more likely to ask a female than a male. And once they ask the female, she says, yes, 50% more. So women are asked more and they say yes more. And by saying yes more, we're sort of continuously confirming this belief that women are the ones who will take on the work that goes unrewarded and unrecognized. So it's, it's this expectation piece that really is driving a core part of why women end up with this non-promotable work. That, that's fascinating. Fascinating research. There's a, there is a, a, a lot to unpack there. The, the best analogy that I could come up with, Lisa, and you probably have better, better ones, but I was imagining a group of men that go away for a week to a fishing lodge in the north. And while they're away at this lodge, they cook, they clean, they look after themselves, everything gets taken care of. That same group of men, when they come back to their, uh, to their homes and holiday parties and dinner parties, those same men that could get up and they could do the cooking and they could do all the cleaning and, all, and everything and be self-sufficient, all of a sudden they do nothing and it's deferred to the women. Now, I think that's kind of what you're suggesting is at play here. What, so what are some of the root causes of, of these unspoken cultural norms and expectations that we place on females? I mean, there's a very strong cultural norm of women being helpers. And you can sort of see how in the home that those cultural norms get reinforced when the woman is the one who gets pregnant and she's nurturing for the child when it first uh, is, is, you know, arrives. And that sort of, you know, we've, we've been brought up in households where maybe the, the woman was the one who had what we call the comparative advantage in the home, because that's where she was specializing while the husband was specializing in, in outside work. So we have a very strong norm of women playing a stronger role in the household. Fortunately, there are many families in which that is no longer the case, including my own. The, the issue is just that these norms that we have in the household, there's no reason for them to spill over into the workplace. You know, mm -hmm. while we may have said, you know, the women, you know, and some women do, some women are more concerned about taking care of their children and, and feel more of a motherly bond. There's nothing wrong with that. It's just when we don't have these differences and preferences, which is often the case when we come into the workplace, then we need to recognize that we're applying the same norms and expectations that we have in the household to what happens in the workplace. And that is not only hurting women. It is also hurting the organizations they're working for, because what they want is not to give the work to the person who is least reluctant to take it on, but rather to the one 
who is best at doing it. So that's really where um, we, we need to focus on sort of this expectation piece because it is so critical in demonstrating that we're making mistakes by just giving um, the work that nobody wants to do to the employees who are least reluctant to take it on. Yeah, Lisa, can you break down some of the impacts that this is having and the, the consequences that this has on women's careers specifically? Yeah, so it's the, the consequences for women's careers. I've, I've worked on, on gender differences and advancement my entire uh, career. Uh, you know, we, we all know the research that has been done. There's, you know, gender differences in negotiation, gender differences in confidence. There are all these differences that we've pointed out. And there are many things that organizations have done to really try to fix or improve or sort of level the playing field uh, for men and women. What is exciting about and disturbing about non-promotable work is that in some sense, it seems like the anger that has been holding women back all along. Because if you are given more work, so instead of just focusing on the outcomes, what this non-promotable work points us to is that we need to start looking at how everybody's spending every single day in the office. We can't just look at the final salaries. We can't just look at the, the advancement, but let's figure out what happens in those eight hours when you show up at work. And if women are spending more time during those eight hours on work that doesn't get recognized, it's not just that they don't get promoted. They also will get paid less and we've shown in our research that if you are given more non-promotable work, you will fail when you go in to try to negotiate because you can't negotiate if you're in a position where you're doing the least valued work in your organization. So the sort of in terms of pure compensations, the effects are very large. What it also happens at the same time is that your sort of overall satisfaction at your job is going to decrease. So uh, there's sort of two different ways that this can play out. And I mentioned the study earlier that shows that there is a difference of 200 hours between men and women. That actually uh, happens both for junior partners and, and uh, for partners or the sort of the people who are trying to become partners. If we look at the sort of yet to become partners, uh, they are spending, women are spending 200 more hours of non-promotable work, but they're also spending 200 fewer hours on promotable work. So you can imagine how that plays out. They have sort of what we call a work-work imbalance. They're not spending enough time on the work that really matters for promotion. Intriguingly, when we look at the people who have become partners, the women there are also spending 200 more hours on non-promotable work, but they're spending the same number of hours on promotable work as the men. So they're just working 200 more hours, which... Wow contributes to burnout, it contributes to stress. And it's like one thing is to work a lot of hours, but if you're putting in those extra hours to do work that nobody cares about, that's, that's really um, a terrible position to, to be in. And, and one of the things that we're intriguingly seeing when you ask women why they quit their jobs, many of them are quitting their jobs because they don't feel like they um, got assignments that were appropriate for their skill level. They didn't feel like they got the right opportunities. They didn't feel like they were recognized for the training that they brought to the organization. So it all points to dissatisfaction mm -hmm. with the work that you have. So um, sort of the, the burnout stress and you know, the mental toll that the success of work takes on women when they're working on the things that doesn't get any recognition is 
we, we really have to take that into account. It's not just a question of, of promotion and advancement and, and salary. There's this whole mental cost that comes from working really, really hard and feeling like you're doing everything you can. But if you're given a task that nobody cares about, it doesn't matter how hard you try because nobody will ever give you the recognition that you deserve for that work. Right. So the, the women that are leaving, there's really a theme of uh, not just underappreciation, but almost it's like the underutilization is causing yeah. the underappreciation, which I think this, like, this is such fascinating research that you have done, Lisa, because I mean, look at the state of the labor market right now. Uh, there are, there are, uh, all of the baby boomers are retiring. There's such competition uh, uh, for talent. And so in so many cases, companies are now the cause of their own undoing because they have talent in a lot of cases is what it sounds like. But because of these blind spots, they're the ones that are the cause of their talent leaving their organizations in droves. Is that fair? I, I think that is fair. And, and it's, you know, certainly um, with, with remote work and hybrid work, the, the issues of non-promotable work becomes elevated to 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 an extent that's hard to predict because once you are working remotely you don't get to see what all the promotable work is so you may be working very hard on all the assignments that you're getting not realizing that you're not getting anything that is comparable to your peers that are going to advance um faster right. so, so there's this you know it also ties yeah. in very nicely together with the whole issue everybody now is talking about quiet quitting and um, yes. it's certainly showing up a lot for, for women who are talking about quiet quitting. And there was a, just an article in The Guardian yesterday that fortunately referenced our, our work on non-promotable work, where the argument awesome. is it's, it's not quiet quitting. It's, you know, it's stopping to do all of this non-promotable work that you are given on top of everything else that you should be doing. So it's not that you're quitting. You're still doing the work that really matters. It's stopping to do all the work that sort of keeps all the wheels do, running in the organization, but that you get no credit for. So I think Lisa, one of the other things that you, you touched on there, which has, it's multifaceted was uh, women sort of have the choice to, to do their core job and then the non-promotable tasks or, or the non-promotable tasks take time away from their core job. And so my, uh, my, my sister is actually a partner at an accounting firm. And when I was telling her about your book, she couldn't wait to read it because she can identify it with it. And she is definitely in the category of doing her core job and then taking on the extra work. And I see how it affects her at home. And it has, she has three kids and married and, and um, some of these norms that, that are, are at place in the house just I can see how it could lead to burnout. And then my hope is that she's not going to get there, but I could certainly see uh, how it could. So maybe let's get into some strategies. Like what do we do with all of this information? So the data, the research is clear. How do women start to take back control of their working environment? So I, I think the first step, and, and, you know, I, I, I appreciate you sharing your story about your, your sister. And that's, you know, when we talk about these issues, it's it's easy to 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 somehow make light of the research. It is what it is. We present the data. We we're talking about you know nearly half of the working population um, 
who have trained, you know, your sisters or partners, she's highly skilled, she's trying to be a successful mom, she has three kids. And I'm sure if she's taking on a lot of non-promotable work, she's truly struggling. And, and that's what doesn't come out when I'm talking about this. Because we've had so many conversations with young women who graduated from business schools or law schools, and they're coming into the workplace. They want to contribute. They have aspirations of having tremendous careers. And they come in, you know, sprinting out of the gate, and they come into a workplace where you send them off on a track where they're sprinting in the wrong direction. And nobody stops to pause them and to say, wait a minute, we could use your talent much better someplace else, but because we've all gotten locked into this process of thinking, oh, the holiday party should be planned by a woman. You know, we have a very disturbing story in, uh, in the book where I spoke to uh, this woman who was a lawyer and was um, very early on, tasked with recruiting interns for the firm. Now, as a lawyer, you want to practice law. You shouldn't be busy recruiting interns. But somehow, she had been told that this was the really critical work for her to do. So the, it, it, the reason why we wrote the book, this is my first book. I'm, I'm an academic. I, I like doing my academic research. The reason why we wrote this book is that we really owe it to these women, and we owe it to ourselves and to the organizations to address this problem. And some of the things that we can do, number one for these women is to talk about this issue of non-promotable work. Talk about how they're not alone, women everywhere are doing more of this work and it is hurting organizations. It's not just hurting them. It, they're not contributing all they can to their organization. And there's room for them to have a conversation with their manager to say, how can I better contribute? This isn't about me feeling like I'm unfairly treated. I don't feel like I'm contributing enough. Tap me for the talent I have. So the first step is awareness. Um, and it's it's also individual awareness for, for women to sort of stop and say, what is the non-promotable work that I'm doing? Write out just a day and say, how much time am I spending on the non-promotable work? How much am I spending on promotable work? Yeah. And then try to get a sense. How does that, in a month, how many days are you spending on non-promotable work? And how many days are other people? Are you, if you are spending more time than your colleagues, you're, you need to do something about it. And the things that you can do as an individual sort of is, is too fast. It's similar to when we think about our retirement portfolio. You know, we want to think about what we currently have and we want to think about what we're adding. And in looking at what you currently have, you know, what often happens is that you end up with assignments that somehow just keeps carrying on. You know, you pick them up early in your career, but then you keep, you know, you, you keep being the one who puts together the, the meeting notes, or you keep being the one who schedules the next meeting, even though you have advanced to a position where those are not assignments you should be doing anymore. So unfortunately, when we all get busy, <laughs> we are so busy playing, you know, whack-a-mole that we, we, we don't keep track of, should I really be doing that? And every time it comes up, you're like, oh, somebody else should be doing that, but I'll do it this one more time. So taking time to just take stock of what am I doing? Are there things that I really could be justified in passing off to someone else? Should it have been somebody else's job? But then also just saying, I need to have a conversation with my manager and say, this is how much time I'm spending on this work. Is there a different way that I could better contribute? Uh, to the organization. The way I'm looking at it, I'm spending two days a week 
on things that seem to matter less to the organization. Can we talk about getting rid of the things on my list that is less important? Can I be on the product launch rather than the internal review committee? So yeah. sort of assessing your portfolio is, is sort of a larger step to take. But the first step to take is also just to say, how do you respond when you get repeated requests to take on uh, these non-promotable assignments? How, how can you sort of potentially do a better job of saying no or, you know, certainly in, we're, we're seeing a lot of cases where we're not very good at saying no. We say yes very quickly. We underestimate how long uh, things are going to take. We have all these traps that we fall into. But another thing that we don't do well is that even when we say yes, um, we think the only option is to say yes, but you don't just have to say yes. You can negotiate that yes. You can say, I will do this task if you get rid of one of my other non-promotable assignments, or I will do it this one time as long as somebody else comes in. Or you can divvy up that task to smaller pieces and say, oh, how about if we say that these are three parts, I'll do part A and Bill and Jim will do the two other parts. So the yeah. book has a lot of advice to how, based on sort of our own experiences, how do you navigate both sort of the stock of your, your work assignments, but also the flow so that you make sure that things become better balanced. Mm -hmm. Lisa, I wanna get into some of the emotions that come up for people, especially uh, females, when it comes to saying no. But I, I wanna get your thoughts on, uh, on some advice that I, that I see floating around quite often. And it's, and, it's, and, it's, and it's sort of generalized advice, but it's basically to get ahead in your career in your 20s, say yes to everything. In your 30s, to get ahead in your career, say no to everything. Uh, I, I'm just interested, and we know within reason, right? But um, I'm interested in what your thoughts are on that advice. So, you know, as I said before, everybody has to do some non-promotable work. Um, yeah. And so, so you have to say yes to some, and you certainly have to say yes to some when you first start out. What I find intriguing, and this is again from from a lot of these interviews, is that. Um, and not just from the interviews, we know that the expectations are that women would be doing different work than men. So the, the requests that women are going to get are very different from the requests that men are getting. And somehow, even starting out, it you know had this fascinating interview with a guy where um, when you first graduate with an MBA, you generally are told that there's no room for negotiation. But he had negotiated the work assignments that he would get. He had made it very clear. I know I can't negotiate, but this is the kind of work that I want to do. These are the assignments that I want to have. And when he joined, he also knew that he had to do some non-promotable tasks, but he was very strategic in that non-promotable work so that he ended up serving on the, on the sports committee so that he knew that he would be hanging out with all the executives and get attractive work assignments. So the whole way through, he was navigating with a very clear vision of where he wanted to be and ended up with a portfolio of work where even the non-promotable work sort of was indirectly promotable. So you want to say yes early on, but there are ways of navigating around that. You know, there are ways when you get asked to, 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 to work on an assignment that you think really isn't tapping your talent to say, thank you so much for asking me. I think this is a better assignment for somebody potentially more junior to you but I had envisioned that I could contribute more if you had put me on this more attractive assignment. 
So you're not, yeah. you know, you are helping out. Oftentimes when you get these requests, all the requester wants is a solution. If you help provide that solution and you frame it in terms of, I can contribute more if you directed me here. It's not, it's not that I don't want to work. I'm happy to work. I just want to make sure that I'm contributing the best I can for this organization. So I agree that saying yes early is, is, is important. And regrettably, because expectations play such a large role, it is more important for women to do this because they're likely to experience backlash. But that being said, you can still sort of, you know, change this into a joint problem where you're helping the organization and yourself by saying, I can do more than what you're asking me to do right now. Mm -hmm. And I think that was a wonderful reframe because I cannot imagine for the life of me a reasonable manager having that request made of them in, in the way that you just said that to say, look, all of this other work I'm doing is taking away from more profit and more success and more client engagement and more referrals and, and a better reputation in the marketplace for our brand. I can't imagine, like you'd, you'd have to be a masochistic manager to, uh, to not be excited about having that conversation. Yeah. Which brings me back to this whole process of saying no. And I, and, I, and I think two of the hardest things that people in general, men or women, uh, uh, have is, is asking for help and saying no. And I, and I think that they're closely related, Lisa. Now, there's, I know there's tools and strategies to say no. And I wanna, I, I'd love your advice on some of that. But before, no matter what the tool or strategy is, like I think there's an emotion. There's an emotional bridge we have to, we have to cross to use the tool to ask no. And I, and I wonder if you could sort of walk us through, if, if that's true, because maybe that's not true, but that's always been my impression of saying no. There's the tool and then there's overcoming the fear or the courage or the emotional bridge. I wonder if you could talk about your experience with that emotional bridge and then get to some how-tos on saying no. So, you know, admittedly, I think saying no uh, those emotions differ between men and women uh, okay. because yeah. we all have these expectations that women will say yes. There are justifiably more fears associated with saying no, but we have also internalized expectations. So when we, when we survey women and ask them, how do you feel about saying no? The, the most prominent emotion that they report is guilt. They feel guilty when they think about saying no. So there is this emotional barrier to saying no, because you, you feel like it is, um, it, it is your job to do it. And um, I, I think I have sort of two, two important anecdotes. I, I was, we've obviously done a lot of interviews during this whole process of the book coming out. And I was talking to a journalist who said that in their team, they had a female journalist that whenever they had a big project that would come in, she was the one who immediately would prepare uh, sort of a calendar of deliverables and dates on, on to, to sort of complete the big project. And the entire team had decided that the reason why she had taken on this task was that her tolerance of stress was lower. They all agreed her preferences are different. This is why she's doing the work. Now, why it's very tempting to say that if we take a step back, what they were doing in this team was identical to what we were doing our little group exercises. Because... Yeah it was far more stressful for her to think about not doing the work because it wouldn't get done unless she did it. Whereas nobody else had to feel any stress because she always did it. So when we look at these situations, sort of to, to take a step back and say, 
is this just because we've all coordinated on her being the one doing it? Because then she will feel more stress. She will feel more guilt because everyone is relying on it. So, you know, thinking in all these situations, what is the role of guilt? What is the role of expectations and how does that play into the emotions that we feel in the situation and, and how can we change it? Now, in terms of sort of overcoming um, this barrier to saying no, um, for me, the, the no club was really instrumental in this because what happened in the no club was that we would meet once a month and every time we would have to report on the things that we had said yes to, which unfortunately tended to be a very long list and the things that we had said no to that would give a pat on the back. But in, in, in sort of reporting on what we had said yes to, it really forced me to start thinking about what my implicit no was. Because every time I had said yes to something, the team would ask me, so what are you going to say no to instead? You still only have 24 hours in the day. So given that you've taken this on and you already were overloaded, where's, where are those hours coming from? So really being forced to think about the implicit no. And where that really helped me was that I realized that my implicit no always were my kids. So if I... If somebody showed up at my door on a Friday afternoon asking me to read a paper by Monday morning because it was critical that they got feedback, I used to feel guilty for not being willing to help them. It became a choice between me and the person who was asking me. But once I became aware of my implicit no, I suddenly realized the choice isn't between the person asking me and myself, but it's the person asking me and my kids and then it became much easier to say no, because my kids deserved all the time that they could get. I'd already worked an insanely long work week. And now because I had to help out this person who didn't get me the paper during the week, I was going to take time away from them. So thinking about why is it that you feel bad when you say no and sort of framing it in terms of where's the time coming from? Why is it? Why do you have such a trigger to be pleasing and say yes? Because that Reflecting on that, I literally, when people ask me now to do things that are non-promotable last minute, I think carefully about what is my implicit no, because it makes it easier for me to then say, is this trade-off reasonable? And very often it's not. Yes, fascinating. Great advice. And is there is there any aspect to this that's a little bit like exposure therapy? Like, does the feeling of guilt actually dissipate the more that you use this muscle, Lisa? I, so I, to, you know, using the muscle, it, it, it takes time to build up to strength, you know? So initially yeah, I, I used to have a picture of my kids right next to my office door so that when people oh, would come yeah. in, I would actually see the, the picture yeah. of my kids and I don't need to see the picture of my kids anymore. So I, I definitely have, um, it's, it definitely builds up strength. You're building up your no muscle. The, the more you, and, and part of it is also that you're realizing that many of your fears are a bit unfounded. I, I was really afraid of declining and worried about the consequences that it would have. And one of my early no's was to an editor who needed a referee report. And I wrote and said, I, if I write, I'm already doing a lot of referee reports. If I do yet another one, it means that I can't write my research paper. And the editor wrote back and, and I suggested somebody else who could solve the problem and write the referee report. And the editor wrote back and said, thank you so much for the suggestion. And thank you for saying no, this profession needs more of your papers than they need your referee reports. 
So my fear of saying no was, was completely unfounded. The, the editor understood why I couldn't help out with yet another referee report. Yeah, though no, that's that's a good story. The the other piece of advice you had on saying no, which I really really loved as well, was when you get asked to do something in the future, we often will say no to stuff that's going to cause us stress down the road because we sort of convince ourselves that I'll have some time for it 8 months from now, like that conference that's not going to happen till June. And then inevitably June comes around and that work just stresses us out. And the, the advice that you had, I believe, was imagine that that task was going to take place tomorrow. How would you feel about it? Excited or stressed out? And if you're stressed out, even though it's not going to happen until the future, just say no to it. And I thought that was wonderful advice. Yeah. I, I mean, we, we have a lot of biases that push us towards uh, saying yes when we shouldn't. You know, another one of the biases is that we tend to think that we can get something done quickly. You know, there, and one of the rules that we sort of came up with was that when you're trying to estimate how long something will take it take you, if you multiply by four, that's probably going to get you in the right ballpark. That's, so time and again, great. we take on things just because it seems like we can quickly get it done. And, yeah. you know, very rarely, you know, the example we have in the book is painting a room. Everybody has tried to paint a room. We think we can get it done, you know, in a couple of hours. And lo and behold, a week later, the, we still have, you know, paint standing in buckets and the room isn't done. So yeah. getting a better yeah. assessment of how long things take um, will help you yeah. sort of decline um, things faster. We had an interesting conversation with an organization where they had this problem of women. When it came time for promotion, um, the women didn't have enough revenue generating work. And one of the things they started saying to their female employees was that when they would go to a meeting and these requests to take on work that they really shouldn't be doing would come up was to mirror the body language of their male colleagues. So to, you know, look at how they become engaged, fold up their sleeves, sort of, you know, put on their jackets, just find calmness in sort of doing what everybody else is doing so that you don't feel like the deer in the headlights who has to, you know, reluctantly raise your hand. Yeah. No, that's good. Now, tell me about some. Uh, tell me about some other impact stories. And so, the book is, the book came out in, uh, in a few months ago. And uh, as women are reading this book and starting to use some of those tools, like what are some of the stories that are getting fed back to you about how it's making a difference? I, I think the. I, I I just did a big event this morning, and um, where where some of the women in the audience had been to an earlier event, and I think the the sort of the, the most intriguing story was that they're getting the language that they need to talk about this work, that, that they're getting just talking about non-promotable work, or maybe not just talking about non-promotable work, but thinking about it along this continuum of what is it that really matters for my career. So it's helping them prioritize what they should be doing. And it is giving them a language around this work. So one of the, you know, we, We've talked a lot about the individual solutions and there will be there are many organizational solutions, but one of the key points of the book is that because this is driven by expectations, there's only so much an individual can do because we have to, as much as you manage to say no, you may be able to fend off requests, but they will keep coming. And importantly, if you say no, they're going to just go to another female. So it really isn't just a problem that the individual woman can solve. And what yeah. was it, you know, really nice to hear this morning was that women are finding ways of sort of 
seeding their organizations to secure change. They're, you know, if yes. they're in meetings and somebody asks for a volunteer, they say, how about if we just take turns? How about if we put names into a hat? So getting the language and understanding this mechanism of expectation is empowering women to take small, seemingly innocent steps that, that really are amounting to, um, to large changes in their own careers. Yes, that is a perfect segue. Now, here's another analogy that I think about often, and it's, and it's this, uh, this unfortunate circumstance where somebody falls down a well, and now if you fell down a well, uh, you could just sit there and wait to be rescued, or you could try to find ways to creatively find your own way out. And the best way would be if you're trying to find your own way out while help is on the way. And I think most of our conversation so far, Lisa, has been focused on the person falling down the well and trying to find your own way out. Now, I really would love to get into some, some tips and some strategies for men to be advocates for women because we know that the dominant group, whatever that might be, whatever the situation, if it's gender or race or religion or go on and on and on, uh, the dominant group must give license and agency to the less dominant groups. Now, I hope that there's a lot of men listening right now and taking notes and saying, okay, I'm ready to roll up my sleeves and be an advocate and be an ally and help. How can men, how can organizational structures start to do that? So, you know, I very much appreciate your question. So, you know, we often sort of position this as men versus women. And, you know, there might be some men who feel threatened. Um, it's important to recognize that what we're talking about is sort of things on average. There are men who are stuck doing a lot of non-promotable work as well. So yes. while being female gives you a lot of this work, if you are in a very male-dominated organization, there will be men who are stuck doing most of the non-promotable work. So um, men should be interested both because they could be in the same position. They should also be interested because many men tend to enjoy the company or of women or they, they sort of have women that they love in their lives. It might be a partner, it might be a child. And what, what I've seen time and again when, when talking about this work is that many of the men in the audience will come to me and say, this, I, I see that this is my partner. She is struggling so much. Can I please get an article to share with her? So as much as we want men to sort of step up and become allies, many men immediately recognize their loved ones as struggling with these problems. So, so um, we, we need men as allies. And part of the reason why we need men as allies is also that this is not what organizations want to do. So when we, you know, the professional services firm that we talked to, when they saw that women were spending 200 more hours on non-promotable work, they immediately changed things. This is not what organizations want to do. And one of the problems is that when we just sort of think about who's doing the, the work that nobody really wants to do. We, we tend to focus on who's doing the holiday party, who's cleaning up in the kitchen. And it doesn't really amount to a lot. But once you add up all of the non-promotable work that's being done, it turns out that women are spending so much more time on this that it really is hurting their, their potential and the way that they're contributing to the organization. So the, the, the first step is to become aware of this problem and become aware of this not being in the interest of the organization that uh, is employing you and is employing the women in your organization. So the first step is awareness. 
The, the second step ideally is to try to document this in your own organization. And that, this doesn't mean, you know, the organization we worked with that had sort of meticulous accounts of ours, we could precisely pinpoint, but just start with like the low hanging fruit. Who is it who tends to, to be on, on the committees that nobody really cares about? Or do you even need that committee? So documenting whether or not it's a problem in your organization and then go through sort of a very, um, next time you're at, think about how you're allocating work in the organization. You know, if, if, mm. if you come in and ask for a volunteer, this, you know, it sounds like rocket science to change institutions, but it isn't. Instead of asking for volunteers, just put names in a hat and draw one. And the first guy who just says, I've heard that the way that this happened, the way this is going to work out is that we're more likely to get women to end up taking on this work. Why don't we just put names in a hat? And it's not just women. One of the things that I haven't mentioned yeah. is that employees of color are far more likely to end up in this bucket as well. So be the guy who proposes a change, be the guy who says, let's put names into a hat. Let's take turns. You know, next time that Sue is asked to take notes, say, no, you know, how about if I do it this time and Jim does it after me, you know, be yeah. the one who introduces different ways of allocating work. And, you know, this is sort of, like just seeding change in the organization. If you're a manager, there's a lot more you can do than that. Yeah, one of my favorite parts of conversations like these, Lisa, is it feels like a bit of a uh, of a low grade uh, or, or a lesser impact counseling session. And so I'll tell you what's coming up for me. I also wonder, I'm picturing myself in a team meeting about some kind of a non-promotable task and the name's going in the hat. And I'm envisioning that I might actually say in cases, let's not even bother with that task at all. Like uh, if, if there, I, I'm feeling, because I, I know there are times where I probably have felt, well, not, I, I, I know for sure I have felt that angst about, geez, I would not, I don't want to spend any time on that task. And then somebody else does it. And I work with a lot of females when I'm fortunate for that. And I'm now, the, the book has made me question all of the things that I delegate or other people volunteer for and trying to figure out ways to actually just cut all of that non-essential stuff out of our business. And so I'm not there yet, but it's certainly an action that I've got for our team to try to have conversations and, and do that. So I, I could see that that draw, drawing names out of a hat could work in a couple of different ways. So a very practical tip. Thank you. No, no. And I, I think that's a, a really great point that once everybody's at risk of getting the work, it forces all of us to reconsider whether or not this is a, an assignment that makes sense. You know, what happened in a lot of organizations yeah. was that we got rid of our administrative assistants. So yes. you know, we all had to scale back. Um, we got rid of the administrative assistants, but we didn't stop to say, what are we going to do with all the work that administrative assistants used to do? We didn't have to sort yeah. of reassessment. And what yeah. happened was that a lot of that work sort of went up instead of, <laughs> of going down. So in having this discussion, the hope is both the work that doesn't need to get done shouldn't get done. And by making everybody at risk of taking it on, we're more likely to engage in that conversation. The work that needs to be done will be more fairly distributed. And it will also cause us to sort of stop and say, should this really be a promotable assignment? You know, what I find so intriguing with an assignment like onboarding is that it isn't promotable. It has none of the characteristics of a non-promotable task. You know, Everybody right now is struggling to, to bring new employees and we're spending lots of resources to bring a, a new employee. 
you know, an employee leaving is super costly. Onboarding is probably one of the most important things that we're doing right now to make sure that an employee comes in, is happy and stays. And yet that job tends to go completely unrecognized. And it's really important that we have somebody who is good at doing that, who can connect people to you know, upper management, to get them situated, give them the right work. Once you start thinking about all this non-promotable work, there will be assignments such as onboarding where people start thinking this should be rewarded. This, should, this is a really important task. We shouldn't just have a little checkbox that says, yeah. did you help out in the office? But we should actually think about what did you do to help out? And we're going to, you know, should create incentives for employees to step up to this type of work. Yeah. So directly attaching that to their role scorecard, uh, as an example, could be a good way to do that. Uh, Lisa, and I think we have touched on, on some of these elements, but I, I, I want to make sure that I state it clearly. Uh, one of the most common questions that I get from people are like, let's just say a mid-level manager trying to figure out how to manage up. And uh, so I was curious to, to read that in the book that all change initiatives don't have to start at the top. And I, and I wonder if there's some things in addition to what you've already mentioned, just to equip people with some tools and strategies for managing up a little bit. So, um, you know, as, as I said, there is, there is a lot of things that the individual manager can do. Um, you know, I was the chair of my own department. One of the things that um, once I became aware of this, you know, you're busy as a manager, you want things done, you're more likely to ask the people who are, will say yes and just get the work done. So I started creating a list of who are the ones who have, aren't doing any non-promotable tasks so that I was ready when I knew an assignment would come up that wasn't rewarded. And the benefit of doing all of this was that I could tell my dean, look, look at what we're doing in the Department of Economics. We're being really conscious of how we're distributing this work. I'm now keeping track of who's serving on the committees. I'm making sure that that is representative of the composition I have on my faculty so that the dean became aware of these issues and looked at what I was doing as being uh, unique and, and you know, with some foresight that wasn't already recognized at the institution. So it wasn't just that I was changing how we were allocating work in my own department, but by informing the dean, a lot of practices were also being adopted at the dean's office and transitioned out to other departments at the university. Yeah, good advice, really good advice. Lisa, I wonder if you would share with us uh, some ways that your own career and your own life has been affected by non-promotable tasks. So, so this is, I'm, I'm not usually one to, to share stories from my personal life, um, but I, uh, in writing the book, I ultimately decided that it was um, important to do so because I've spoken to so many women who are struggling and it, it is very easy to take lightly um, this issue of non-promotable work. In, in my own life, you know, I, I was raised in a family where everybody had a lot of grit. Everybody, both of my parents were working. They were working really hard and it was always expected that I worked really hard and I always have. Um, and as I sort of um, became successful in my career, the demands for non-promotable work, both at my own institution and outside of 
my own institution just kept growing and growing and I was running faster and faster. Um, you know, there, I don't remember a vacation I've been on where I didn't try to sneak in work. I have not had, you know, I've, I've gotten much better after the no club, but I, um, in many ways was a workaholic and, part of the reason why I was workaholic was that I had all these expectations to do all this work that ultimately didn't count. And as much as we started the no club and um, sort of was trying to get training and saying no, and I certainly got better at it, I still would sneak in assignments and not reveal it to the no club. And I was running faster and faster. I kept uh, taking on work um, that was too much. And ultimately, um, you know, my, my days were truly getting up at 6 a.m., working until midnight. You know, it's, it was insane. And ultimately, I ended up with, um, I gave a big talk at the university. I ended up with a thunderclap headache and was rushed to the hospital with severe hypertension. And it's just to say, it's the consequences of working so hard to have a career and trying to please everyone by taking on this non-promotable work are substantial. And um, you know, the, the non-promotable work in my life, I thought I could handle it by just running a little bit faster, by just having a few more to-do lists. And you can't, you, you, you need to, for your family and for yourself, you need to focus your work on what you've been hired to do and you need your management team to understand that you are not doing all you can if you're spending all your time on this non-promotable work. And that's sort of, you know, maybe I don't think quiet quitting is the right work because you're not quietly quitting. You're still working your butt off, but you cannot be satisfying all the demands for promotable work and the demands for non-promotable work at the same time without hurting yourself and hurting the, the, the work that you are actually are contributing to the organization. So non-promotable work had a detrimental effect on me, on my family. Um, and the reason for writing this book is precisely that I, I, other people should stop before they end up in the hospital with this. And of course, not everybody's going to end up at that stage, but we're doing a disservice to female employees if we don't find a way of correcting the distribution of non-promotable work. Lisa, thank you for sharing that. Since the, since the hospitalization, uh, what kinds of changes have you made in your life? <clears throat> I think, you know, regrettably, I, I am still a workaholic. So um, the, the, the changes I have made have focused on doing more, non, more promotable work. Um, yeah. I have gotten much better at saying no to the things that that don't matter. Um, and I've really started focusing on what is that, what is it that brings me joy? You know, like working from early in the morning until late in the night, it is not the life I want to have. So it's not that I'm quietly quitting, but I've been trying to, and I think been rather successful in limiting sort of the, the beginning of the work in the morning and the work in the evening and spending time with my family instead, because it's, that's, I don't want to hire somebody else to live the life that I enjoy living. 
you know, it's possible to hire a nanny. It's possible to hire somebody to cook you meals. That's the part that I love most about my life. And I, I don't want to pay for somebody else to live the best part of my life. So I love my job. I'm passionate about my job. But there's this whole other side that we all need to find a way of fitting in because we get this one life and um, we need to push organizations. I've also called out for help from, from, from management who have been really good in saying, no, you, you shouldn't be taking this on. You, you, we're going to give you a relief for this because you're taking on this other work to put the burden on someone else to help you manage this work. That if you take on a big other obligation, others have to help you solve the problem. So I've gotten, I've certainly gotten better at saying no. And um, while I'm not at the point where I'm working the number of hours I really want to, because they, they need to be fewer, I am working many fewer hours than I was before. Yeah, I'm glad to hear that your colleagues have been receptive. And I, I, I like to believe in the goodness of people. And I, I think so often we're so caught up in our own lanes and, our, and the, own, the view of our own world and our own work and life demands that it's hard to know how other people are doing sometimes. And um, I certainly know when somebody raises an alarm bell, I, I often feel bad that I didn't see it coming. I'm, and I'm glad that you're surrounded by great colleagues. And I, thank you for your vulnerability there. And I think that's really going to speak to the hearts uh, of anybody that, that, that listens, Lisa. So thank you for that. Thanks. The movement, I think you're creating a movement here, uh, and, uh, and I'm certainly cheering for that to happen. What is the No Club and, and the process of writing to the book and the impact that you're starting to become aware of meant to you personally? So the, the, you know, the No Club um, came at probably my, my worst um, point in my <laughs> career. And uh, when it first started, I, I got... It started with Linda Babcock sort of knowing all of our, Linda is uh, the famous author of Women Don't Ask. Um, so she's done a lot of research on gender negotiation. And um, she sort of knew all the members of the group and we knew that we were all overloaded. She was overloaded as well. And when she first sent out a message saying, why don't we start this, this club together to try to get our work lives under control? I was like, I, I don't have time to be members of a club. Why would I join a club? I, it's like the last thing I need is another application. Um, <laughs> the no club really um, is, is I think without a doubt, one of the best things I've done um, in the past 12 years. It's only because my kids are older than that, because my kids are better than that. But it really, the camaraderie of having five women who are all rooting for your success and who are taking the time to really listen to the struggles that you have and giving you, for me, getting the tools to say no was a really important step. Having somebody help you to say no, the way you're going to respond to this. I Before, when I thought about saying no, I would write out these long emails. And at the end of the email, when I sort of explained all the circumstances why I couldn't do work, I was like, oh, just forget it. I'll just do it. Where the No Club was really helpful was that they said no. Give a short explanation, help them solve the problem. Say no. And just getting that language or even, you know, sometimes we even exchange what the, what the email should be. So the No Club really helped me get over that first hurdle and just sort of experience what is it that happens when you say no correctly? Not, not when you say no the way I was going to say no, 
But what happens when you sort of move into this territory and slowly you become comfortable? So certainly the, the No Club has been instrumental in me getting more control over my work life. Um, but they have also become really, really dear friends. You know, it's sort of as an adult, it, it's not so often that you suddenly meet another group of people that become truly close friends who are rooting for you. And the No Club um, really, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a family where we're all rooting for one another. We all want the rest of the team to be successful. So, so it's, been, it's been quite a journey. You know, we never thought we were going to write a book. We never thought we would do joint research. And, you know, it's sort of, it's been a very interesting 12-year journey of, of being a No Club member. Yes, you mentioned earlier that uh, we get this one life to live and uh, building a life where you've got a community around you that is rooting for you, I think is probably one of the most beautiful ways to live a life. And I'm glad that you have that in your life, Lisa. And I think anybody that meets you or has a chance to talk to you or learn about the work that you're doing will also be rooting for you. I know uh, I am rooting for you and the movement that you're creating. I think it's just wonderful work. It's necessary work. And, and uh, I'm certainly looking forward to in, embarking on uh, our own organizational journey to adopt and apply some of the things that you've written about and experienced. So thank you so much for joining us today. I have absolutely love this conversation. I, I don't usually take a lot of notes and I've taken uh, pages of notes to follow up on later, Lisa. Just a pleasure to meet you. Thank you. Well, thank you so much for having me on the show. I appreciate it. Where can people track you down if they want to get in touch with you? Um, I think the best way to get in touch with us is to look at our website. Um, it's a hard one to remember. It is thenoclub.com. So if you go to thenoclub.com, uh, you will see uh, our email, which is thenoclub at gmail.com. So um, go to thenoclub.com and you will um, see all the events that we're doing. If you want us to come out and talk to your organization, we're doing a lot of uh, corporate speaking engagements right now. We really want to get the word out on non-promotable work. Um, as I said before, I've worked on women's advancement my entire career. I really feel that changing the way that we distribute work and reward work in the workplace is the one way that we can reduce the gender wage gap, make it easier for women to negotiate, give them opportunities for advancement, reduce the gender gap and burnout all at the same time. So we've sort of been top down looking at these differences and saying, oh, we should reduce the gender wage gap. But if we don't study where it's coming from, we can't just reduce the gender wage gap. If we give women the same opportunities in the workplace, many of these things are gonna fall into place. So the whole team, and this is why we wrote the book, see this as sort of the first step to really helping get um, a more level playing field for, for men and women in the workplace. So it's, it's, and, and importantly, it's an easy thing to fix. You know, all the other things that we've been talking about, the fixes that we've had have been really complex. It's not just that we can sort of let all men and women negotiate and think that things are gonna turn out. This is easy. You know, we're talking about work that everybody can do. We just need to change the way that we're distributing it. It's not hard. So. Small changes can go a long way to truly get at these differences that we've been concerned about for the past three decades. 
That's a great way to sum things up. Lisa, thank you for joining us today. And in the meantime, I encourage everybody to pick up a copy of her book, The No Club, Putting a Stop to Women's Dead-End Work. Until next time, thanks for joining us, everyone. Thanks for having me. If you enjoyed this episode and found it helpful, don't forget to give us a five-star rating and subscribe to our YouTube channel or wherever your favorite podcasts are found. And if you're part of a leadership team and you know that your organization is capable of even better performance, please reach out to us at unleashresults.com for a conversation and learn more about how we might help unleash the potential of your team and organization.